Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is mastering and restoration engineer Michael Graves. First of all, there's a new scam on Spotify where people hijacked hits. Well, how they do that? First, you have to understand that on Spotify, you can have the same song multiple times. So, in other words, the artist might release the same song with different distributors. Or maybe there's a different license for different territories, so it's the same song with a different license, and it might be on there five times. Or it could be a single, an album, and a soundtrack. Maybe it's distributed by Disco Kid as an indie and then picked up by a label. So it's the same song that keeps on coming out, keeps on coming out. Problem is, all these songs, which are the same, have to be treated as one. Well, Spotify has something called track linking where it merges all these recordings so you don't lose plays. In other words, let's say you have 5 million plays as an indie artist and then you sign with the major label. Well, you don't want those 5 million plays to go away when the new song is issued. So that's why they're linked together. Now, here's where the scammers come in. What they're doing is they're making a copy of the song and uploading it again so they can take part and some of the money that's being earned. They're not making any changes to the audio, just making a copy and submitting it again. So it basically gets lumped together with all the other versions. Problem with this is distributors don't have measures in place in order to combat that type of piracy. Once upon a time, what everybody did is they had a different ISRC code for every single, every song, every version that was uploaded, but that's no longer required. But there is a possibility that you can combat this because it takes about three months to get the initial payout from Spotify. So you have to notice that this is happening before then. Then you can go back and issue a copyright infringement claim. Scammers are really smart though. And what they're doing is they're uploading their own version and then they're issuing their own copyright infringement claim against the rightful original owner. So you can see how this gets complicated. For a major artist on a major label, they'll use something called Audible Magic, which is sort of a content ID. So there's a subliminal ID that's in it, and you can tell immediately if it's the right one, if it's copied, any of that stuff. That being said, there's even ways around that using vary speed. So if you speed it up or slow it down, or even if you add some reverb to it, sometimes that can fool the content ID. The bottom line is you really have to watch to make sure that somebody isn't taking advantage of your good fortune. It's guaranteed if you're making money, they're coming to get you. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Mixing Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on mixing and immersive audio, self-mastering, new mixer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted price at bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. That's bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. Now, we've all heard about Atmos and how Atmos is taking over and especially when it comes to television. It's now a requirement if you're going to submit audio to Netflix, it has to be with an Atmos mix. That being said, 
Netflix realizes that there is a problem and that most people will not have an Atmos-enabled soundbar or they won't have the proper number of speakers to really take advantage of it, or they might not be listening on headphones. So they're now employing something called Ambio, and this is from Sennheiser. And the cool part is it provides spatial audio with just two speakers. So if you have your stereo speakers that are coming from just about anywhere, you can get the feeling of spatial audio just from that with Sennheiser Ambio. It's already being used on hit shows like Stranger Things, The Witcher, The Atom Project, and Fear Street Trilogy, and it's coming to more as well. Now, Ambio is based on ambisonic technology, which is developed in the UK back in the early 1970s. This was experimented with a lot, but it never really caught on. Sennheiser was trying to take it to another level, though. They've already come out with their version of an ambisonic microphone. They call it the Ambio Mic, and they're trying to employ Ambio in the car, as well as other places that just have stereo playback. So the big thing here is you don't have to make a special mix just for Ambio. They can already take the Atmos file and extract it from that. There are some tools, in fact, that the mixer can use to tweak it a little bit so it works even better, but it's not like going back and doing a complete remix, so you don't have to worry about that. Sennheiser does have software tools that you can buy for panning and for monitor controller. There's even a free panner plugin that's called Deer VR Micro, D-E-A-R-V-R Micro. You might have heard about Sennheiser's Ambio soundbar which is pretty expensive. It's about 2,500, but I think it's pretty well acknowledged that this may be the best soundbar on the market. So all you need is the one speaker. Matter of fact, I've talked to several people that said they have the one soundbar, a couple speakers in the rear and just a subwoofer, and that was plenty and it worked great. They got terrific results. So Ambio doesn't take the place of Atmos. It's not as dramatic, but it does bring a feeling of immersion from just a pair of stereo speakers. My guest this week is audio restoration and mastering engineer Michael Graves, who's a four-time Grammy Award winner and a 12-time nominee. Michael's main focus is saving historical audio that was recorded on deteriorating or obsolete grooved media, as well as more recent recordings where the sound is obscured for various reasons. Michael uses a combination of physical and electronic specialty techniques designed to rescue rare, one-of-a-kind recordings or deteriorating media. This includes old 78 RPM records, clouded by surface noise and years of neglect, right up to digital recordings that were done on some of the earliest pioneering formats. During the interview, we talked about how his hobby became a career, why a high-end turntable is Michael's secret weapon, the surprising stylite that he uses to avoid record surface noise, why a stereo needle is preferred even for a mono record, and much more. I spoke with Michael via Zoom from a studio in Hollywood. Before you even got into mastering, just tell me about your background there, and then we'll, we'll go into mastering and then what you're doing now. My career, uh, this is all sort of a hobby that turned into a career. I didn't get really into this until my late 20s. Um, I worked for Delta. I was loading airplanes for Delta Airlines right out of high school for about 10 years, eight to 10 years. And then um, I left Delta, went to Georgia State University, got a degree, and uh, Around 1998, someone gave me a CD recorder. 
This is, you know, remember 1998, this was a, not a small thing. This is, this is about 400 bucks. It was a 4X recorder. It went into my Gateway 2000 computer and I was as happy as a clam to, to have that CD recorder. And the reason why is because, so I'm 53 years old. When I was in high school, I was a record collector. That was, that was the time, you know, and I've always made cassettes. I was the guy that got a record, opened up the, the, the record, simultaneously opened up a Maxell UDXL2 and put it to a cassette. And that was my copy for the Walkman, for the friends' cars, for the house. It was my portable copy. Um, and along with the records, I was a big, I was really into English music. So anything coming out of England from the 80s. So like, I don't know, New Order, uh, that kind of stuff. The Cult, The Cure, they all, and they all had B-sides. They're all these 12 inches with, with non-album tracks. And that just fascinated me as a kid. But I had the record that I loved, but I can get extra bonus stuff over here if I buy the 12 inches. So that always went onto my cassettes. So I was making these little compilation cassettes uh, with bonus tracks when I was a kid. So when I got my CD recorder, it just was a transition of that. But when you take a record to a CD, the surface noise, all of a sudden there's a spotlight on the surface noise. And, you know, when people understand or find out what I do for a living, they might think that I uh, just hate record noise altogether because that's my job is, is removing noise. But I actually really enjoy putting a record on, dropping the needle, relaxing and listening to the record, surface noise and all. It's really nice. But there's a randomness to that noise when you do it that way. Once you record it, that noise becomes fixed and it's part of that song forever. So that's that was the problem I was trying to deal with. Um, I remember, you know, there might be a pop like two minutes into a song and to this day, when I hear songs that I used to have on my cassettes that had that pop, I'm expecting a pop at that time. So I, I was trying to avoid that. Um, so once I recorded my records onto my CD recorder, my new fancy CD recorder, I'm faced with, oh, there's a surface noise I want to try to deal with. And that was the start of a career, <laughs> really just going down a rabbit hole of, of noise reduction. You must have been hip to early software solutions then. Yeah, there wasn't much when I first, this is again, this is around 1998. The only thing that was around was there was a German company that made a, a DAW called Triple Dat, Triple D-A-T. I guess it, it was a weird name. I don't know if it was geared at, I don't know. It's just weird that it had DAT in the name. And the company was Creamware and they made an audio restoration plugin. And that, you know, seemed like a good idea to me. And I started playing around with that and you, you immediately see how, good it can be and then you immediately see the shortcomings of it the artifacts what it can't do and what it what it puts in in place of the the bad noise it'll it'll actually put in some bad computer noise so you know i, I learned early on there's there's a you got to find that sweet spot of removing the noise and also not really adding in anything bad in but that really i mean i almost got obsessed with that whole idea of cleaning up a record and and i did i i uh i thought i was going to transfer my whole record collection and I soon realized that this is a huge time endeavor and uh, it had never, I still have my record collection that I've never transferred, yeah. but I started doing uh, projects for friends. It would give me 20 bucks to do the record and I would do it where it got around. I started, started doing larger collections. And meanwhile, I'm honing my skills and I start talking to, I start thinking maybe this could be a career opportunity and where, what are, you know, what avenues can I go down? And I, 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 I I thought of three separate things. One is the record collectors, private record collectors. 
Another one is our institutional archives. There's a lot of institutions that have sound collections, whether it be library or corporate archives. That was interesting to me. Also forensic audio restoration briefly interests me, but I did some of that and that's really sort of, it really is soul sucking to hear some of these recordings. They're, they're hard to listen to sometimes. I, it feels good that I could help somebody out, but hearing some of these things is disturbing. So I, I didn't like that. <laughs> um, and then I guess the, I always, as a sort of a pipe dream, I thought, well, commercial, the music industry would be fun to get to. But at the time I was in Atlanta, Georgia, and it just seemed so, it might as well go to Mars. So that really wasn't an option for me, I, I didn't think. Um, but I did pursue my, my business to um, Georgia State University Special Collections Library has the Johnny Mercer archive. And it's, I was a huge fan of that era of music, huge fan of Johnny Mercer in particular. And they have all of his uh, home recordings there. They have all of his commercial recordings, a lot of unfinished work. And that was, and I, you know, I got that job and I, I did all that work and it was, it was fascinating. It was a great learning experience. It was a great business experience. Everything about it was great. Uh, a lot of different media also. So I was primarily focused on records, grooved discs. So that could be a 70 RPM. It could be an acetate, it could be an LP, seven inch, all that kind of stuff. That was one of my early experiences with tape. Early on, I had a, a, a really nice engineer friend, older guy, who said, you know, I told him what I was doing and he said, get a tape machine. I don't want to do tape. I like records. Get a tape machine, learn how to use it. Some of the best advice I've ever gotten because I did. And now I have a whole room full of tape machines, but, I, you know, that opened the door. Um, so I did that work for a while with institutional archives. But meantime, meanwhile, at the same time, there was a, a label started in, in Atlanta called Dust to Digital. Dust to Digital. They have a big internet presence now for their, their uh, social presence, but they're always movies and old pictures and old music on, on, on Instagram and Facebook. But their first project, and I didn't know them at the time, uh, was a collection of old 78s gospel, gospel recordings. It was a really beautiful box set called Goodbye Babylon. And their first project, Out the Door, got a Grammy nomination. That started them on the, on the right foot for a you know, nice career. And uh, a few about a year or so after that, he Lance Ledbetter, the owner of the, the label, Lance and April Ledbetter owned the, the label. Um, he was looking for a new mastering slash restoration person to work with, and he called up Georgia State University Special Collections Department, who I had just finished with their Johnny Mercer, and they said, "Hey, do you know anybody that does this kind of work?" Yeah, and they gave him my number, and that started that. And then we hit it off great, and I've done pretty much every Dusted Digital project since then, and it's great because they. They're sort of, and it's not just me saying this, it's written about a lot. They're sort of the gold standard in this kind of reissue world for, for this era of music and their attention to detail and just just getting everything right. They're, they're really good at that. And I, I recognized that when I, first, when I first met Lance in April. So I was really happy to be part of their, a part of their team. That's, I've gotten most of my Grammy nominations have come from, from projects with Dusted Digital. When you started at Georgia State, were you working at their facility with their gear? No, all my gear. They had gear. I'm not sure. They had gone over some changeover from an archival staff, and then I'm not sure why it wasn't there anymore. They had nice turntables and tape machines, um, but they weren't being used. I, I had my own my own gear, so I would I would pick up the assets, bring them to my studio, and, and work on them there and bring them back. Your gear must have evolved, I'm sure. Absolutely, yeah. You know, I started, let's see, it was probably just a laptop, and 
a mediocre turntable. You know, I soon turntables. I, I I soon realized that that's where I really need to spend my, you know, limited budget. And I was sort of coming out of hobby world. I really need to spend my money on the turntable and and the needles first. It's sort of like a microphone, right? If you're you can capture a, a vocal, but if you're using a crappy mic, you're only going to get so much. It's the same with the, the turntable and the and the needle that you that you pick up the sound with. So. I tried various turntables and I ended up, I, I really, I still swear by techniques, um, direct drive turntables, love them. The speed is always consistently solid. There's never any wow and flutter issues. The motor noise is virtually nothing. So that's that's what I use. I have a, a special one now. They, they made the, you know, the, the classic techniques, SL1200. Those are great. They get sort of a bad name because DJ, the DJ world, but I, yeah. I, they are audiophile turntables in my opinion. They had a special edition of that. They only sold to radio stations uh, called an SP15, which is it added 78 RPM and the ability to have a larger tone arm so that you could accommodate larger records than a 12 inch. So I get a lot of um, 16 inch transcription records and you can't put those on a regular turntable because they're, they're so large. So, yeah, turntables. I've immediately realized turntables are important to understand and also the different different needles, the styli. For 78s, there's a whole class of needles called truncated styli, which is if you think of a needle coming down to a point, truncated needle is just basically at the bottom of it chopped off a little bit so that it rides high in the groove and theoretically avoids a lot of the surface noise. And it does, it's pretty amazing. I always think of, when people think of audio restoration, if they think of it at all, they think of all the great things we can do digitally, but there's a there's an equal amount of work that needs to be done in the analog world before it gets digitized. To, to make the process smoother and, and more more transparent. The less work you have to give the computer to do, the better. So it's just simple stuff like if you've got multiple choices of a record, choose the cleanest one. Make sure your record is clean, use a record vacuum. Make sure you use the right needle that can minimize any surface noise. Just again, make it easier on yourself on the digital side when you start pulling out the, the restoration tools. Let's talk about needles for a second. Yeah. I assume you have um, a great variety to choose from, and I wonder if you have a go-to standard that you try first and then vary from that. It depends on on the record. If it's a 78, there's a certain size that I will, uh, as a, a anywhere from a 2.8 to a 3.2 millimeter truncated elliptical. <laughs> and here's the other crazy thing, man. These these needles, uh, there's only one um, company in the world making these. It's, it's a place called Expert Stylus in, in England. And um, when I first started getting these, um, I think it was, I'm not sure if they did email, it was strictly by phone or by, by writing. It's crazy. Um, but I've got about 20, 20 or 25 different, different sizes. So I mentioned like 2.8, they, they go down to 1.0 on up to like 4, 4.5 or something mils and truncated or truncated elliptical. And it starts to get really confusing after a while. I just have almost one of every size. And sometimes people will tell you that a certain needle is right for a certain era. Let's, let's say a deca of recording from 1930. Someone might say, well, this is the size you want. Maybe it's really more about, you know, trying different needles and see which one sounds the best because there's two things happening. There's the size of the groove and how it was pressed and different labels were trying different things back then. But there's also how worn is the record. If, it's, if it was played with a steel needle, you just have to try, for me, I have to try different style to try to 
minimize as much of that surface noise as I can. I say steel needles. If you think about an old Victrola with the steel needles, yeah. they sound amazing, but they literally leave a trail of black dust behind it. Mm -hmm. So you've only got a few playings out of those Victrolas before the record is just junk. When you're doing a restoration, is it mostly from a grooved disc? It used the first 10 years, 10, maybe 10, 12 years. That's all I, I worked with. Because it's, there's, you know, people think about reissues. They might think, well, they just go back to the vault and get the tape. So many times, either the tape isn't in the vault or might, maybe someone wasn't on a major label. They weren't on a label at all. And they, it was up to them to keep their masters. And, you know, they were young and in a band, they didn't keep the masters. There's so many reasons why there are no masters left. So we have to go back to the commercial recording. If it's a 78, of course, there are no tapes. There was, you know, they were cut. Sometimes they were cut to wax in the acoustic era. But sometimes they might. All you have are the uh, the original, original metal parts, that, and that gets that gets more confusing. But most of the time, if it's a if it's a release coming from old seventy eight records, we're using the the commercially released seventy eights, and then it's a matter of finding the cleanest one. Um, but a lot of times, I work with. I can't tell you how many times I work with the only known copy in existence of a specific record, and you just have to make the best of it because there is no alternative. And is it to the point, I, I know like with some old tapes, especially where after you've baked them, you might only have one pass. Is it the same thing with vinyl? Must be. Vinyl, no, you're okay. I mean, uh, uh, um, acetates, you have, you want to, of course, limit them out. If uh, for, uh, for people, uh, acetates are, are sort of synonymous with lacquers. It's the same thing. It's basically like an aluminum core disc with a lacquer on top and the, the groove is cut directly into it. Sometimes I work with commercial acetates. Sometimes I work with home recorded acetates. That was a pre-tape. That was a really popular pastime for, you know, the general public to buy these home recording devices and they would sing into them or, you know, an audio letter. One of the big things I did when I first started um, around World War II, it was really popular for the surface men to go into, they had these little uh, recording booths that it was usually Pepsi Cola uh, sponsored them because they get these little cardboard acetates that say Pepsi on them. But they would go in there and these little, I don't think they're even seven inch discs, they're like five inch discs. They record audio letters to go back home before they go off and, and do their service. And people have these records and that's, they're difficult to work with because like I said, most acetates are aluminum core with a lacquer surface. These are cardboard with a lacquer surface. So they don't age well sometimes. Sometimes they're all bowed up and they're unplayable, but um, a lot of times they are playable. And that's when I first started to realize how in, how much sound can really affect people. I've, I've seen grown adults just reduced to tears in my studio when I play the record and there's their father's voice who they sometimes they haven't heard in years, sometimes they've never heard. I mean, there was one instance where this guy, he recorded an audio letter back, back home and two weeks later, his plane was shot down. So his, his daughter, probably in her 60s, 70s at that time when she came to me, had never heard her father's voice. I learned early I need to keep a box of tissue at my desk when, when I play these things for people because you see how powerful these these sounds are. Wow, yeah. yeah. Oh, it makes sense. But after the, so I, I'd answer your other question. Yeah, I did. There was a point there where I started working with other other people, other labels started to, to find me and, and use me for their, for their projects. And then I became exposed more to more tape projects. Sometimes I actually got the physical tape. Sometimes I got a, a digitized version of the, of the tape. So... Again, and that's a whole other set of problems. You know, you've got their tape dropouts. There are just, just all kind of issues to deal with with tape that are separate from, from vinyl or anything grooved. Wow. 
most people don't think about those, even if you're experienced, you just don't think about that those problems. Right, you don't. And so the cassettes, I was talking to someone earlier, I did a project, um, these were cassettes from uh, Somalia. And they, in Somalia, this is before the Civil War in Somalia, and a lot, most of the music was uh, traded, tape trading. That's how people consume their music, music there. And the radio station, all the cassettes. And a lot of times they're fourth, fifth generation dubs of these cassettes. And <clears throat> the main radio station there, Radio Hergeza, had a huge cassette archive. And as they saw, you know, the troops coming in, they knew, I mean, this happens, this story is so, happens everywhere. But as some, you know, there's like a flourishing of culture and art, and then some, some asshole wants to come in and take all that down and start a new regime. And what do they do? They get rid of the previous culture and the culture makers. So they saw this coming. And they took a lot of their assets, this radio station, and buried them in, in pots and in boxes. They just buried it on the grounds of the radio station. Sure enough, when the troops came in, the, you know, the radio station was destroyed. But 10, 12, 15 years later, they dug those tapes up. <laughs> and I got to work with some of those cassettes. Wow. And the big, being underground wasn't really a problem. It was the fact that they're fourth, fifth generation cassettes. So you've got azimuth problem on top of azimuth problems and and tape dropouts on top of you know everything gets multiplied and the problem on the first tape gets transferred to the next tape and then that gets at its own problem so there's there's all kind of ways that was a big learning experience how do i try to rescue the content from this this media that just had to learn how to deal with it and of course the noise would be a different flavor than what you get with vinyl as well with group absolutely discs. yeah yeah you know it's funny i uh, Sometimes if it's, let's just say, sometimes they, the two can come together. Uh, so like, let's say it's a small regional label or maybe somewhere in a developing nation, they, there's a record. Well, once I get rid of the record noise, sometimes I'll realize, oh, hell, this thing was cut from a cassette and I can hear the cassette problem. So then I've got to dig on deeper and fix the cassette problems before I can actually put on my mastering hat and start to really master this thing. That's sort of how I think of it. I, I, I restore, try to restore everything to get to a level that as a mastering engineer, I can just do my job, you know, tweaking it and making sure it's, you know, in focus, so to speak. Now, your job as a mastering engineer is different from most mastering engineers who are doing new music. Yeah. In that you're trying to clean everything up and what they're just trying to do is make things louder and clearer. There's probably an element in that, what you're doing, but it's not not the same at all. It's not the same. Learning. I have, you know, most of my stuff really, I, I do enjoy work doing my traditional mastering. It's fun. It's a, it's a nice, like, I love it when I'm doing a catalog project that's right off of a master tape, like a Buck Owens project. Okay. Those, those tapes, that was just everybody at the top of their game and the tapes sound great. There's not a whole lot of restoration work for me to do. It's just really fun to, you know, do my mastering stuff without having to bother with the restoration. I love restoration. It's how I made my name, but it's nice to get a break sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Or if it's a if it's a new band, you know, it's I really have to dial myself back because I'm so used to being really heavy-handed because I, I sort of have to be in the restoration phase to sort of bring some of this stuff up from up from the noise. Yeah, it's sort of a relaxing. When I, I kind of love it when I get to work with a new band because it's just not not as much pressure. I guess not. Yeah, especially when you have something that has multiple backups. At least today. That's, yeah, that's the other thing, you know, the, the thing mastering engineers, all, the thing we all say, and it's the truth, you know, mastering can't fix a bad mix. But I, not being formally trained, I was too stupid to know that. And also, I didn't have the opportunity, right? If I'm working with a recording from 1930s, I can't say, hey, 
I don't want a new mix on this. Yeah. I have to make it work, period. So a lot of times I can fix a mix just because, you know, sheer bullheadedness. I, I have to sometimes. That's pretty funny because I know mastering engineers are not shy about sending something back. But no, I know. I just don't have that. I never had that luxury. Yeah. So I, I, I do now. And a lot of times it is absolutely better if someone can fix the mix back in the mixing stage than to have me try to do it. But I can do it. <laughs> what kind of restoration tools are you using? Is there anything special that you're using that... Because well, I really love, you know, it's the most popular one. I, I really love um, the Isotope stuff, the RX Suite, the Advanced. They have some really amazing tools in there. The, the declick and decraggle is, is really great. And so is their spectral denoise. It's, you know, for record stuff, the, the, the clicks and crackle are pretty easy to get out. It's the, it's the broadband noise. It's that underlying shh that will introduce the artifacts if you're not careful. And I, I really like Isotope's um, spectral denoise. It seems to have the least amount of artifacts. I have Cedar, all the Cedar plugins, and that's great stuff too. Sometimes with 78s, when sometimes you combine Cedar with Isotope, you can make some magic happen. There's another great, there's a company called Zynaptic, Z-Y-N-A-P-T-I-Q, and they have a thing called uh, Unchirp, which is, I, I had to applaud them because they're the only company that I know of who are thinking about this, the ways to deal with MP3 artifacts. You know, we're not gonna get, get away from MP3s, and there's a whole decade where content was created on MP, MP3. So I used to, you know, say I don't like to work with MP3s, but I can't do that. That's really, you know, if someone's created their art on an MP3 player because when they bought it, that's all they could afford. And the thing was switched to MP3 by default and they made some brilliant art. I can't say, well, I don't work with MP3s. So I've got to try to figure out a way to work with that and, and reduce any of those MP3 artifacts. And, and the D-Chirp, D-Chirp can really, can really work with that. But what's cool about the D-Chirp is Audio restoration artifacts, if you have to hit something really hard, is very similar to MP3 artifacts. So are in the cases where I have to go really heavy with some sort of denoising, if I can put a synaptic de-chirp at the end of that, it really gets rid of a lot of those, those ugly things that I brought in. And, and the end result can end up being pretty spectacular. Yeah, that's the thing about most plugins, actually, that the heavier you get with them, the more unreal everything sounds in the artifacts that, that you introduce, and especially with denoise yes. plugins. That, that was what really sent me down the rabbit hole from the beginning, is that I was so excited by the prospect of reducing this noise, and then once you turn it on, you realize, oh, God, yeah, the noise is gone, but it sounds terrible. Yeah. So my whole life's quest is to try to... I, I really have a low tolerance for, for artifacts, so I, I, I try to make it as clean as I can, but I'm if there's ever a choice when... Uh, either leave the analog noise in or re or introduce computer noise, I'm always going to leave the analog noise in. So I, I never want to like suck the air out of it or just make it sound plastic or unnatural. But you're absolutely right. You can make, you can totally ruin a recording by, by being too heavy handed with the, with the restoration. What kind of master do you deliver? Well, um, you know, labels I work with, they're still doing a lot of physical media. So mostly these days it's either vinyl or CD. I do a lot of work with a label called uh, Omnivore Recordings, and and they do CD with just about everything that they do. So I'm still delivering DDPs and vinyl masters. Some of the indie projects I'm working with, they are, you know, it might be just digital files. Do you cut the vinyl yourself? Nope. No, we have, uh, I've got friends that cut them, and so I, get, I do like a pre-master. That's sort of how I master everything now. I sort of master it like it's, like it's going towards vinyl. 
I feel like that's just a really good sweet spot. It, I keep my dynamic range in there, which is great for streaming these days. You want to have the dynamic range in there. The the I don't and I'm, I'm not crazy about loudness. And not, fortunately, none of my clients are all you know they don't want it super loud. They want to keep the dynamics there. I'm really lucky in that respect. So if if I I find that if I aim towards a good vinyl master, it translates very well to CD or or digital or streaming. Are your clients at all concerned about streaming? Some are. Some of the smaller, so I, you know, it's interesting. I'm, on, I'm working with a whole new generation of reissue labels now, and all over the world. And mostly, it's either it's vinyl and streaming. That's that's their that thing. CDs are not really. I'm not really doing a lot of that for for the younger generation. The new crop of restoration of uh, reissue people. Although I see where CDs have really ticked up, the sales have ticked up over the last year or so, and yeah, it looks like I could see this that. year too. Yeah. The labels I work with that make them sell them. So there is still a market. It's drastically reduced from what we used to have back in the heyday, but they are still being bought. And there's a considerable amount of people that, that still want that physical media. Yeah. Uh, especially think about the work I do. If I'm working with old classic rock, like I just finished this, I shouldn't say old classic rock, but the, this blonde, uh, there's a Blondie box set coming out and I, I did all the, all the re- remastering and for that. And the CDs are selling very well. If you think about the audience, right? Yeah. They want, they want the physical media. Yeah. Is there a particular problem that you see over and over again with the media that you get? Well, it depends on what the media. Or is there just a problem in what you do that you see over and over again that you can kind of predict? One, well, one thing, it's, um, it's not even a big problem. It's trying to explain to people about, um, and sometimes you can add in a language barrier to make this even more confusing. Let's say I'm working with a, a collector in Greece that has some really great Great 78s from the late 20s or something. Well, the content on that 78 is mono, but the groove on there will be picked up by a stereo needle. So, and that's actually great for me. I like it for mono content. I really prefer to have a, a discrete left and right channel because that gives me three options. Sometimes the left side is better. Sometimes the right side is better. Sometimes it's better if you sum the two together. And if you sum the two together, I prefer to do my declicking be first on the left and right independently and then sum them together. And you can get some really spectacular noise reduction just by summing left and right. But now explaining that to someone, it can be very challenging. A lot, so a lot of times, and people might think, well, this is a mono record. I'll just send Mike a mono file. And I get that a lot. And I have to explain what I just said to you in an email and, and it, all, it ends being a, a long, very long email. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> How many people actually understand what you do? <laughs> not many people and they also don't think about this kind of work there's so many jobs in the music business that i, I didn't know existed hell i didn't know this was a job I, like i said i just sort of i always take i say i snuck into the music business through the back door because nobody was saying i want to be a restoration specialist yeah uh but it you know it's worked i have an insatiable appetite for music i love all different genres of music i really get off on it so i couldn't have picked a better career path yeah i guess you hear probably more varied projects than most other mastering engineers. I really, you know, I think when I think I've heard most everything, I realized that I, I have not. I, I, you know, one of the first labels that started working with me after Dust of Digital was a label called Analog Africa. And this is, ba- he's based in Frankfurt and he specializes in, in um, African funk from the 70s, mostly West African funk. But he does a lot of South American stuff too. And it, this music is absolutely brilliant. Uh, it's so much of it is so great. Now I just finished a prog- progress uh, project that was um, for another label out of Mexico. It's uh, 
Nicaraguan uh, psychedelic rock, uh, again, from the 70s. So much great music, man. It's endless. Yeah, yeah. Oh, who would have thought? Wow. You're right, yeah. Out of curiosity, so your monitors, what are you listening through? These are uh, Bowers and Wilkins 805s. Okay. Um, they were the most, they were the most, it's all I could afford when I when I first decided to get some really nice monitors. And I, I love them. I still love them. In fact, I just upgraded to a new version. I'm, I'm really happy with, with just everything about them. That's something that you see often, I think. Yeah, you know, I tried, I'm, I don't want to throw other, I've tried other brands that other mastering engineer friends of mine have used and they're all, I like them, but I've just gotten used to these. It's funny, I, um, George Augsburger just designed my room and I love him. He's, he's great. And uh, when he was helping to my room, he, he was remarking how, how much he loves these speakers. So that made me feel good about my choice. Yeah, no kidding. Right. Because his speakers aren't so bad. <laughs> not so bad. <laughs> he might know a thing or two about monitors. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, last question, Mike. I think you already touched on this, but maybe there's something else. What's the best piece of advice that maybe you learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? Well, the tape thing was important. Well, I should know this because um, there's something else I usually tell people that was a great advice. <laughs> I can't think of it anymore. Well, really, you know, one of the things that has sort of worked out perfectly, and I got this from from your book. You know, I, I, I'm self-taught. Uh, I was just, you know, in my mid-20s in Atlanta trying to figure out what I'm doing. And I figured, I sort of realized I'm, I'm sort of mastering. When I'm, when I'm taking these records and I'm putting them on CD, I guess I'm mastering. I, I was too stupid to realize that I should probably go through some sort of hierarchy to before I call myself mastering engineer, but that's what I was doing. So uh, I got your book, the Mastering Engineer's Handbook. I remember there was a section in there that talked about how, you know, a, a good a good skill for a mastering engineer to have is just to be well-versed in as many different genres of music, different styles of music as you can. And boy, I've sure got that in spades just from just the projects I've worked with. So, you know, 20 years in, I'm feeling good and pretty good about my my view of different styles of music. Yeah, one of the things that's interesting that most people don't appreciate about mastering engineers is the breadth of their experience. And they think, oh, I can just buy this piece of software and I can do the same thing. And it's, no, wait a second, no, no. It's a tool, right? The software yeah. is a tool like anything. Yeah. Just because I'll go buy a paintbrush doesn't mean I'm going to paint something yeah. pretty. Yeah, right, <laughs> definitely. You, you know, we could go further. I have a whole other preservation side of the business where I do large archives. So we're doing... Um, Let's talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I realized earlier on that if I can have the opportunity to do the transfer myself, it makes my restoration job easier. So a lot of times people would say, I'll just send you a file or, or can I do the transfer here? And I can work with that. Absolutely. But for the reasons I explained earlier about needle choice and all these different micro decisions I make along the way in my signal path, it just it ends up being a better project if I can do the transfer myself. So let's say there's somebody brings me a box of tapes and records and all kinds of stuff, maybe like 15, 20 hours worth of recorded content in there. And it's end up, you know, going to be one CD length project. Well, there's a lot of archiving there that's not going to necessarily require mastering. So after a while, we realized we should maybe split these two things because sometimes people we were, people were just bringing us their old tapes to transfer. And, and not even want to, you know, not even concerned about releasing them commercially. They just might have family recordings. So we did that. And about five years ago, I partnered with um, Steve Rosenthal. Steve Rosenthal used to own the Magic Shop in New York City, famous recording studio, most famous for Bowie recorded his last two records there. But great guy, 
he, his, his studio closed down and he was also doing a similar thing as I am doing. He was um, working on restoration. He was doing a lot of Woody Guthrie archival restoration, Lou Reed ar uh, restoration archival work. And we knew each other through the recording Academy and we started talking and he said, I've opened up a new restoration shop in, in Brooklyn. And uh, uh, would you like to combine, you know, you, you do West Coast stuff. I do East Coast stuff. We both have a lot of contacts. We both work in this world of catalog work. I said, hell yeah, let's do that. <laughs> and we've been getting, so sometimes we get these large estate archives from artists, bands, different labels might have content. So we have a, in my, this is the, the mastering studio here, but we have another room where we have just, I've collected so many different tape machines. We can do just about any, any tape, any, any media that you've got we can usually handle. So that's become a whole other side business. Well, I guess I really side, they both work in tandem. That's really expanded my knowledge on, on just, you know, so much different tape from the nineties, all the digital stuff from the nineties and the early aughts. That's a, that's a hell hole. You can go down endlessly. Yeah. Those, yeah. Those weird formats. Okay. So how difficult was it to get all of these formats in working condition? <laughs> You know, here in L.A., so we moved to L.A. Uh, four, four years ago, and that's one of the reasons. Well, Atlanta is great for, I always tell people, if you're a musician and you want to, you know, break in the music business, Atlanta is a good place to do that. For someone like me, for catalog work, really, it's either New York or L.A. That's where most of the, of the tapes and the work is. And uh, we love L.A., we love the climate, everything about it. So this was where we were going to go. Also, they have there's techs out here. There's techs out here. Some of the best techs in the world are here. So that's another bonus because I, 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 some half of the help, 80% of the equipment that I have, if I wasn't living in LA, I, I couldn't have it serviced if it goes bad. And we use these machines a lot. So some of them do require servicing fairly often. So that's great. But sometimes like I've got, we have a Studer um, A827. We have the analog and the digital version. The analog version is great. It's a tank and Charlie Bolas here in town. He's the guy and he'll work on my machine, but, the digital, the, the the dash version of the A27 or the D28, A27, it's beautiful, the one I've got, but nobody wants to work on that thing. Yeah. So if it starts to misbehave on me, I don't know what I'm going to do. It's that 90s and that, that digital stuff that it's just not as sexy as the analog stuff. And just the knowledge base for working on this, this gear is, is, is dwindling rapidly. Yeah, that, that early version of digital when everything went to digital tape, that's when it was really dicey because there were so many different formats and they all sort of worked, but not really. And It's really dicey playing it back 20 years later also because, you know, degrading of an analog media is much more forgiving than the degrading digital media. You know, it's, it's, no, it's not a, like a soft decrease in volume. It's a, it's, if something's wrong, it's usually a loud screech. Or something really annoying. Yeah. What do bad. you do when that happens? There's not much you can do. It's um, we've tried. You know, you can try baking. The, the baking tape usually doesn't work. Well, sometimes it does. Sometimes for like um, what's the format? Like a, a, a D88. Those do respond well to baking. Sometimes, as do DATs. Sometimes freezing. I've had maybe I don't know if it's just luck or whatever, but sometimes if baking doesn't work, I'll stick them in the freezer, and the next day I'll take them out, let them sit for a couple hours, and it'll play. <laughs> wow. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes different machines, man. Sometimes I can put a DAT in one machine and it sounds like hell. I put in another machine and it works. 
we have data extractors also. There are these, uh, back in the day, they had, Sony made these little, I guess you plug them into your computer and they were DAT players strictly for data. So they were like backup, tape backups. Mm -hmm. They were not made for audio content at all. But somewhere, somewhere along the line, someone has made firmware, custom firmware, so that you can use these machines to a sort of rip, rip as you will, if you will, uh, a DAT. And that's, that's always a nice thing to have. We have different ways we can try, but sometimes there's just no, it's catastrophic loss, as we say. There's, there's nothing we can do to make this sound better, and it's, it's gone. We'll try everything, but sometimes there's just no getting it out of there. Well, so it goes with some of that yeah. stuff, yeah. Well, very cool. I'm so thankful that we could talk. I can learn about yeah. your world because it's something that I certainly don't hear about often. <laughs> no, no, no. It's a fun. It's fun. It's uh, if you like detail work, this is this is the job for you. Um, I will spend. I do a lot of spectrum editing, so I'll spend you know hours over like a you know a two minute period. But it's enjoyable. I, I like I like the end result. I like polishing up something and saying, "Here you go." You can find out more about Michael at OsirisStudio.com. That's Osiris O S I R I S Studio, all one word. dot com. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com, select the podcast tab, or... Go to bobbyownercircle.com, or you can find it in Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. <laughs>